Deep down. To tell this story well, I have to begin by introducing all the people who played the leading roles in it. I hope to do it right. Andres. He's a petty detective and a scop. He didn't left the police with disgrace. He just had shot out before the thing got serious. We all know that civil servant's salary is not huge. Of course not. Carlos. He's a lawyer. Yes, it could be worse. He studied to become rich, but as we all know, nobody became rich working, so he married Alicia. Alicia. She's a rich kid. Not that kid, actually. She married Carlos because everybody was getting married and he was the only one she believed willing to. Paco. Our poor little Paco is a cop, without eggs, an active policeman, not here at the capital. He's a bit cheeky and so-and-so, and a bit unscrupulous, but around here a Paco always has something to do. Alberto. He's a good guy, a bit womanizer and very cheeky, but a good guy, a policeman too. I put them all together because the sooner we go through them, the better. Maria is exceptional. Working woman, three kids, housewife. She only has a little fault. She's a counselor. No, this is not the fault. The little fault is being a counselor of culture in this town council. Josefa is also a counselor and working woman, a counselor of education no less, 45 years old and leads life to the full in her spare time. I don't judge her. I'm eating with envy. Carmen. It's not that she is exceptional. She is a saint divorced from the counselor of town planning, which is a crime on its own. Marry him, not divorce him, of course. And among other things, she's also Alicia's mother. The Council. By the same cup token, I should talk about the rest of the Council's people here, but they are really odd fishes. Salva is... He is really nice, but so hard to explain. Sandra is great, tender, sweet, and always happy, optimistic by nature, and as everybody must have some fault, he has the worst of all. She's hooked, yes, hooked on gossip TV shows, no less. Ramon, Ramon is fantastic. Well, we are not going to lie, Ramon is handsome. No. Noble. No. Affectionate and attentive. No. But he is the main character and therefore we have to say he's handsome, noble, affectionate and attentive. And that's all. Sienna can be described with one and only word. Divine. And it's a real plainful truth. She is the very main character and furthermore, she is me and some other characters will appear around, but only if the script 
the man said. And lastly, the story leads to an end. It might seem it doesn't by the numerous interruptions, but I swear over the same chance Galician version it does. Now everything is clear, we are ready to start. I was wandering around the Mars Park, taking advantage of the low tide, the fancy open-air cafes and the lots of tourists. They come all the time. They are everywhere. So I supposed I could get something. A job, I mean, I was unemployed. Fine, get lucky. If you don't believe I wanted a job when I was getting money doing nothing, I must say the truth. But it was more interesting the other way. The fact is that I was wandering around looking here and there. There were lots and lots of people, I'm telling you. There were families with children and dogs and cats. What a party! I was really absent-minded looking backwards while I was walking forwards. In other words, I was walking all twisted. And when I tried to put my head in the same direction as my legs, I embedded in a body. Lord, what a body! He was Ramon. He was as big as I remembered him. Physically speaking, I didn't mean he was the light that lighted my life and so. Once I bumped into him, when I still haven't looked up to see his face, and as I was jobless but well brought up, I apologized, the usual in these cases, and he said, You are drunk, Siana. Actually, he didn't say this. It's a tribute to the phrase, You are drunk, swelling because I think it's funny and because I felt like putting this here. What he really said was, Don't worry, it doesn't matter. I already saw you wearing a world of your own. Bloody hell, Siana, it's you. I haven't seen you for ages. Come, have a drink with us. We'll talk for a while. And I went for three reasons mainly. First, because I had gone fishing and I saw a clear chance of fishing, I mean, re-fishing something. Second, I was tired. I had been working for hours. Third, it was for free. We went to a table where other two men were waiting for us. And as it was a few meters apart and I have an incredible mental agility, I had time to think. It's not showing off, it's the truth. 1. What a lucky devil I was finding him again after so many years just by chance. What a fortune! What a delightful surprise! 2. If he saw I was walking absent-minded, how is that he didn't move aside not to collide with me? And to sum up, was it a coincidence we collide? And we arrived at the table. Yes, I couldn't think more than two things. There were only a few meters, take it easy. There were Paco and Alberto. I knew it because Ramon introduced them to me. It wasn't that I met them before or they had their names written on their faces. No. 
Alberto was handsome, a real handsome man, with the big smile included. Not Paco, I can say it gently, but he is clearly not handsome. What they three had in common for sure, because Ramon wasn't good looking either, even though he has his point, was a kind of shamelessness and cheeky that made them very attractive. I thought that they had ended up in that table by the chance of appearing on the Mars Park. But I was wrong. As the conversation was going on, I realized that the thing had more depth. Ramon began the conversation with a subtle and casual, this is the writer, while we were sitting down. I, of course, sat down in one go, wouldn't I? I didn't expect him to read that novel, and particularly that he recognized himself under the main character name. It was obvious I was wrong. He wouldn't drop it like that, taking the mickey, if he hadn't. Oh, that was all I needed. I almost had declared my eternal love for him, among other even more embarrassing things. His friends didn't make too much as if to go deeply into the injury anyway. In fact, later, all was more natural, and there wasn't any mention more to the literary subject. Ramon was acting as the typical person from A Coruña hosting the typical people from Madrid. It is like that. They cannot help it. I liked him, but the guy is just like that. The thing is that he started to explain all the clichés while they were nibbling a Galician octopus portion, because I don't know why they all got so into the Galician octopus. Maybe it's the same that makes me get into the egg rolls at the Chinese restaurants, who knows? And with that beginning, it was only a matter of time the conversation went through the treasure story. A story that was not true, I want to make it crystal clear. But it happens the same when a ship sinks. It may carry eucalyptus to the cellulosis that once they had sunk, they always contain a safe full of money. Let's see. I'm not really quite sure about it. But the natural instinct is saying it isn't when the other is saying it is, to make him look stupid. So he was telling the story so badly. Fine, it was a legend, but it had to be told accurately. Being faithful to the oral tradition. Or better, shut up. It wasn't at the mega international bank, it was at the Universal Savings Bank, I specified. Yes, what she says. Ramon said almost without stopping, I mean, without interrupting the story of the treasure's legend. But his was a story full of inaccuracies. And I had to interrupt him every other word, because it was a complete disaster. Well, you tell it then. Ramon said very angry, very sexy, of course, but really very angry. And I did so, not because he had told me true, but because if it had to be told, it had to be told well, or better, not true. The arrival of the tsunami had been confirmed for March, according to all the experts' forecasts. This time, the epicenter wasn't at Becerra. The news said clearly, 
the major had sold it as an achievement, the third point of the election manifesto, be, at last, the epicenter of a tsunami. And I wouldn't assure categorically it wasn't like that. It also coincided the economic cycle began to grow, and they could take out all the undeclaring comes that had been accumulated in the private strong rooms of the big banks since the introduction of the euro. They couldn't take them out before without arousing suspicions. It's not that I like talking, but if they said they were going through a bad patch, they couldn't go around spending money in a rush. Sure, they didn't mind what the rest of the mortals might think. It's that the treasury might suspect something, which is what truly matters. In short, in the bank's coffers, in the real ones, in the ones that contain words of hundreds not-in-account entries, in this there were loads of money loads of loads and they were overflowing with money. At the city, which really took the biscuit, I mean the loads, was the Universal Savings Bank, and as its own name indicates, it's universal and omnipresent. The biggest strong room of the Universal Savings Bank was at the head office, but the head office of the center of the city centre, not the business centre supermodern ultra-innovative complex. Who was going to suspect that having the operating centre at the industrial estate, they kept the money at the city centre? But that's the way it was, and it was not to arouse suspicions, and to avoid robberies, because at the centre, where the head office was, it was almost impossible to park something powerful enough to do something bad enough. Okay, there was some hold up, as in all of the banks, but in spite of what the press, the bank and the insurance companies said, they never held up more than a few thousands. Really, few. When the tsunami menace was firm, they launched the evacuation plan. It was a plan prepared by the Council's experts, advised by North American specialists. From Hawaii, from the PTWC, Pacific Tsunami Warning Center, who were very experienced in tsunamis. No, they didn't come here or anything. What really happened was that the Council completely ignored the Seismograph Institute's reports. Come on! A tsunami around here? No way. Maybe that big waves that knocked the promenade balustrade down again. It almost happens every winter, and came in handy to hire that companies that, by chance, were always the same. I need to say the council sent the waves on purpose to maintain their friend companies that exaggerate the figures without any problem but it's a remarkable coincidence. The thing is that the Seismographic Institute insisted so much, and so much they pestered that forced them to pay attention. Not by conviction, but because the ratbusters of the Institute talked to the press, and the panic spread all around the city, 
frightening the council. So, to silence the rumors, they couldn't think a better way out than give a press conference to say how the whole thing was well planned, incredibly studied, and how they had all, all, and all under super mega control. Obviously, they hadn't. They didn't even know from which point they had to start. The full council meeting took place at the tapestry lunch, which was already praiseworthy, and under the slogan of we are not leaving until we find a solution, they locked themselves in. Obviously they hadn't. They didn't even know from which point they had to start. The full council meeting took place at the tapestry lunch, which was already praiseworthy, and under the slogan of we are not leaving until we find a solution, they locked themselves in. Of course, civil servants had another slogan that it's not only a slogan, but a basic and unshakable principle that prevails over every other rule or slogan. When it's time to leave, it's time to leave. Considering they had gone in the lunch after coffee hour at about 13.45 and they had to leave to each one's office to tidy up before leaving at 14, they had to be more than fast and agile planning the strategy. The crisis cabinet was in crisis proper and for two minutes they were looking at each other and other to each without speaking until one swine had the regrettable witticism of saying Maybe we should tell the truth. Sit on the bloody party discipline and in your fucking mother, Cabanas! Shut you! The major said. Cabanas had so funny ideas. Afterwards, who knows who, because after the fate of the mayor, nobody dare say a word and backed him more. It wasn't that important, but then the briefcases didn't go where they should, and the end of the month was coming and the holidays too, and the detached house in Oleiros had its expenses. The shy voice said, we can search in the Google. And what the fuck is that? The mayor asked. The councillor of education, the one who knew about these things, opened the laptop, the internet and the Google. As it was not much of thinking too much, and as they had only few minutes left, they went to the point. She wrote down, tsunami, and there appeared hundreds of entries. She scrolled down urgently, searching an emergency evacuation plan. The mayor didn't understand the spending in ultramodern computers if they had to write it down word by word. They made one last try, tsunami emergency evacuation plan. And then Pacific Tsunami Center appeared, or something like that. It was written in English, and the only thing they could see clearly was the tsunami thing. This and that it was in Hawaii. The mayor got upset and said that it wasn't the moment to search for travel bargains. The tourism councillor, the one who was in charge of traveling abroad to promote the city and that supposedly had a degree in English of the Oxford University and that even could speak with a Glaswegian accent, sat down in front of the screen and started to read his way. It's understandable that the plan was only one page long, 
despite the original was larger. The thing is that they only choose the things they could almost understand for sure. Then they thought it was fine to quote the source, because you must quote the sources, and above all, to have someone to blame. The press bought it, more or less, because they thought they had given them a clear and concise summary of a wider plan, and because the press already knew there was a PTWC whose headquarters was in Hawaii that watched the ocean, while experience in evacuations in case of tsunami events and that even made evacuation drills. The press did know. It's also understandable it didn't work quite well, even though, I must say, the thing didn't go as bad as it was planned. In the end, there weren't big losses. When they told the people to evacuate in style, to pack and leave, people got the giggles. They weren't going to pack and leave their houses that still hadn't paid to go nowhere and lose everything. Another thing the council didn't count on, because in Hawaii they only had to rebuild their huts and that was all, the mayor thought. So they had to create a compulsory expropriation agreement. The council committed to help them reconstruct their houses or to provide others of similar characteristics with the disaster area aids they were going to receive. It's not that the people weren't afraid of the tsunami, it's that the people didn't trust a single inch the council, so therefore they had to evacuate by force two days before the terrible event. And they got it. And they even finished in time to let the first evacuated the chance of calling the council names under the sun, because at the end there wasn't going to be any tsunami. But there was broadcasted live satellite link and followed live by millions of diesel spectators that saw the reactors and the area like they said it was centuries ago according to the simulated photographs at the San Pedro's promenade when the sea moved away. And they saw too how the water came back and covered it all and destroyed everything going through. It didn't only affect the city, a bit a bit also affected the rest of the coast. But as a Coruña was in the very epicenter, and it has that turtle's head shape in words of Manuel Rivas, former Manolo, but not yet, acted as a breakwater and curved the effects over the rest. It was that shape too, which prevent the waters to go back to its normal place, acting as limit, as storage. In other words, made the water stay at the same level, not the former level, but above, above the buildings and above everything. And there it began, everything got flooded and with the water the rumors arrived. The Universal Savings Bank had to leave in a hurry and left behind all the money. You see, while you watch a tsunami live on TV you have plenty of time to think whatever silly thing you want. 
The legend sprang up when the journalists asked the president of the Universal Savings Bank about this rumor, and he denied completely, saying that there were fallacies and contentableness. Who follows the gossip TV shows knows well it was a clear confirmation of the rumors. So, under the water, in the very center of the old A Coruña city, deep down, there is the biggest strong room of Galicia, full of money, lots and lots of money, that money that comes in words, waiting for someone to go down and rescue it. They say, I point it out, and I pointed it out to make it clear it was a legend, because these amateur tourists were always in the way and we had to rescue them from drowning because they got caught to a door down there. Well, it seems feasible, Paco said. Yeah, it could be true, Alberto added. I knew it! They loved these stupid things! I was about to go to a bank and ask for a loan to open a bar and tell stories to those idiots. I would have them quite busy. They had four beers. In the meanwhile, I told the treasurer's story and they were paying attention. Ramon looked at me, saying he would tell it better. Sure. How could he? He didn't know half the information all inaccuracies, but criticizing is easy. A silence fell, not outward, but a bit tense, and as I had finished my drink, and seeing the legend thing had had it, and that Ramon was in a bad mood, I thought it was time to go. Are you going already? Ramon said. Yes, I am, I said. He grabbed my hand, and I sat down again. I couldn't believe it. What a loose I am! Let's see, Shiana. If the treasure story were true, do you think there could be a way to get it? Ramon asked. Well, with the right equipment, a lot of time, and knowing how to open a high security strong room, sure, I said. I must admit, my voice was kind of contemptuous, but not to get like that. Really, Shiana? I have just remembered why I dumped you, he said frantically. Ha ha ha! Sure, the reason was my witty answers. Ha ha! And shouldn't it be because of that Mitchell Knighty tall blonde? Shouldn't it? It should, of course. He noticed it, or so seemed to me, because his face changed. I'm not the one to blame. What do you do? Paco asked. He dropped it just like that. I didn't even know he was talking to me. Ramon cleared it up for me with a bad look. He was really sensitive. I told him that I didn't do anything, that I was unemployed. Ramon kept looking badly at me. 
He knew more than he showed. I also noticed it. But I was not going to confess in front of a cop which business was mine. We were getting on very well, but I should be careful. Fine. You, I can tell. It doesn't matter now. I was a recoverer. It was a new job born after the tsunami. People left in a hurry and later, as they were settling down at their new homes, they realized they had forgotten little things. Those little things that always get lost in the moves and that when you realize you don't have them, it makes a hole in your heart. Your first communion photo album, your lucky tie. And you will say, where is the mystery? The thing is that, how can you say it? That was the cover, I mean, the excuse, because we had few orders of that kind, really few, some from time to time. On the other hand, we had a different kind of orders, just a bit more self-interested, the typical. When you alert that had already received the insurance compensation for a bunch of platinum rings he had into the counter and, afterwards, gets homesickness and wants us to go down there and recover them, without telling it to the insurance guys, of course. And there were also the other orders, those that didn't come exactly from the legal owners of the things we had to recover. You see, they kind of knew that the so-and-so's uncle's grandpa's sister-in-law had something into her mattress, and they asked us to recover it, with the very intention of giving it back to her, of course, but with all the mess and all the trouble Maybe they couldn't find her, but it was better than an acquaintance had the goods. I didn't ask too much questions, exactly none. And I also didn't use to recover all the items people ordered. That was what I told them. The same the dressmakers. Didn't they always keep a piece of fabric when they made a dress? I think we have to keep the traditions, and that's it. I wasn't afraid, I mean, there was a kind of gap in the law between the sea treasure recovery law and the private property law, because they still hadn't agreed if the land flooded by the tsunami was maritime or still private property. My theory is that if the sea always gives back what doesn't own, and it kept occupying that territory, it meant it is maritime. And, as I said before, that's it. Anyway, the job we were doing wasn't very well thought. People didn't feel comfortable with others taking their stuff. They said we were getting rich at their expense. But as they couldn't catch us, they had to put up with it. And when they needed it, ask for help. I wasn't getting rich. The most I could get were things to swap at the central shops. Sometimes I could get food for the whole month. 
or the latest generation equipment, you know, radars, prospectors, immersion equipment, the usual. I understand that you do other jobs, or at least, that's what your record says. Alberto dropped. My record? Oh my! Did I have one of those? Paco and Alberto are in the trade, Ramon said with sarcasm. Fuck! What a lucky shot! There was no problem anyway, unless I confessed they had nothing. Nothing at all. They knew what I did, and so what? If they didn't catch me red-handed, they had nothing to do. Yes, they could lay a trap with a false order. If they were so clever. Their brightness was enough to set a night patrol. But they didn't like getting wet, so they never got to catch us. What fools you are! There is nothing down there! I said. Well, we are going to know it soon because... <gasps> Paco started to say, but suddenly he gave a jump as somebody had kicked him bluntly to shut him up. I took a quick look around to get a signal, but I didn't see anything. Even I appreciated it because the treasure topic ended there, and also ended there the evening. Andres could hardly forget that 7th of July. He arrived at work as every day, I mean, late, bad and dragging. His boss called him to his office. That wasn't surprising either. He always was doing things wrong. Not because he was useless, but because he wasn't motivated. Or in other words, his motivations didn't come from the right places. The chief, calm as he used, with the calmness years of career and having seen every kind of things gave, said, put the weapon and the batch on the table and leave. I don't want to see you again. And Andres dropped his last joke in the police station. Shouldn't it be the batch first? He said, insinuating the chief was afraid of him, but the chief wasn't afraid. He was cautious, years of career, and of having seen every kind of things taught him that you couldn't do much with a batch, but with a gun. Then he left the office so satisfied, saying he had resigned, but he hadn't. They fired him discreetly, of course. The chief did it because Andres' father was a friend of him, and the internal affairs were approaching dangerously. He just knew it from the beginning. He took after his father, but without his cunning. Andres' father had the virtue of knowing how flexible the thin line that separated good and evil was. Andres hadn't. He was as subtle as a cow making Camarina's lace. It was a disgrace to Andres' father because of the embarrassment during the Saturday Cards games and the Sunday soccer matches. If the thing got a bit tense, the subject would come out. In fact, it came out every time it was necessary to undermine the opponent's moral. But deep down, he felt a strong relief. Only God knows how many Iberian hams he had to give to the chief in his son's short career. It also was a relief to Andres, not half. He thought he could keep on with his job 
but avoiding his fathers, his chiefs, and the boring guys of internal affairs lectures. But he forgot a little detail. The people he did business with only were interested in him because he was a cop. It was obvious, but Andres had no time to think, or brain. Luckily for him, he had that second-hand car salesman charm that men liked so much, and he got to keep the contact with his academy partners Paco, Alberto and Ramon. They had more or less the same ethics, although they had a bit more of shame and more than a bit of fear. They not only had joined the police by vocation, but also because they wanted a steady job where they couldn't be fired easily. Which gave us a clue of their efficiency. That's how he got the private detective license and opened an office in his place, without the resident's association permit or a plate on the door. But there is an office. His neighbor certainly says so. Here comes such people. But who is going to pay attention to a poor lady that is known as the grapevine of the neighborhood? He's earning his living. From time to time, he gets a great fright. But having the one and only latest jower of the city more than repays him. Andres' most important client, or at least the one who gives him more job, was the mayor. Although in his favor, we have to say he was a client inherited from his father. He didn't pay badly, and he was a grateful man. Well, to be more precise, I should say he was a vindictive and resentful man. Therefore, and following for the first and only time in his life his father's advice, Andres did everything the mayor ordered. From his relationship with the mayor, Andres got many contacts. Really good contacts. Really those contacts. He ended up working for the town council in general. He was like the caretaker of the dark side. He knew everything about everybody. And in the long run, that was the best pension scheme. The mayor settled down as he grew old. The settling and amassed fortune gifts, of course. But his relax didn't make a hole in Andres' finances. The councillor of town planning took his place. The poor man had more and more work because there were fewer and fewer pieces of land free, even though they were absorbing more and more bordering councils. Andres in this field was multifunctional. He looked for new land, threw all women out of the interesting buildings, the usual in this department. In spite of everything, they became friends. Andres even had dinner at his place on Fridays. But this stage only lasted until he broke the heart of the councillor's daughter, Alicia. The truth is that Alicia only was a weekend affair. But the councillor got so worked up thinking that individual could got his beloved daughter pregnant and would have to share the inheritance with him that he took out a check, wrote down the zeros he knew Andres would like 
and put an end to that matter. Andres took the check as suspiciously as he could, not to show he was just going to dump the girl for free, and grateful he was because he plenty knew the councillor was going to use the check stub to wrap it in to Alicia to convince her he was a shady character. The councillor would regret it two years later, when Alicia married Carlos, the lawyer. Although Andres didn't go back to the councillor's place, they still had dinner on Fridays, mostly since the councillor got divorced. Other check for Andres, because he had to help seduce Carmen, councillor's wife, and even he couldn't, on the pictures it looked like he could, and it worked for the judge. Carmen never forgave him. She regretted the times she cooked for him on that family Fridays. In one of those dinners, the councillor brought a friend, the Universal Savings Bank's manager. Inviting him was not a coincidence. They had been doing business for years. Not the councillor, his daughter. But this time, he had asked for someone trustworthy. Andres was that someone trustworthy, the Universal Savings Bank's manager, set the issue out directly, plainly. Have you ever heard that story of a treasure? The Universal Savings Bank's manager got to ask before Andres interrupted him with laughs. The manager didn't like that whole of laughter interruption from his potential future partner, but the counselor told him with a look to be a bit patient, that the kid was worthy. The manager didn't trust too much, but kept on with the presentation preventing Andres from answering the question. It's true, down there is a safe bursting at the seams of money. But we didn't left it because we were in a hurry, or because we forgot about it. We left it on purpose. We left it because it was the most convenient. Is it clear? Andres didn't dare answer, not because he had noticed the previous murderer's look, but because the councillor stuck the foot into his leg in a way that didn't leave room for doubts. It isn't necessary either to say if they were undeclaring camps or my lovely auntie's inheritance. None of us works for the treasury, and we don't like making questions either, do we? Andres didn't even move. It was we, I, who spread the rumor to see if someone felt like doing our job. But we weren't very lucky. Some crazy people went down, or at least they are saying so all around the internet. But the money is still there. And that's what you need me for. The Universal Savings Bank's manager looked at him badly. Make it clear he didn't have to take anything out because there wasn't anything. Andres got confused. He imagined it was a set phrase like this conversation had never existed. Even he didn't understand what in aid of were so many euphemisms. And he neither understood why they hadn't gone down before for the money, or why they wanted to go then. Nor the bank manager, nor the councillor, 
were willing to clear that doubts up and Andres stopped thinking about it. They put over the table one of those checks he liked and it was enough. He promised them discretion and the whole package. He just would find a way to steal some words nobody could tell or find someone to blame if they could. Andres knew a pair of recovers that helped him from time to time with the cases, especially if it was necessary to dive looking for an old file in some public organization. One of those recovers was Salva, but he didn't do business with him since one day Andres left him stranded in one of his errands when the police played up. The other was in prison, not because of an Andres errand, but for other little things less deep but also water-related. Then, in the face of having to give the check back or become a scuba diver, he phoned Ramon to see if he could do something for his recovered friend, or maybe recommended other, because even he was living in unregulated lands, he still kept the contacts. Ramon lived happily. He lived the life he had dreamt. A good car, a good house, a good girl, or two or three. He was pleased to hear from Andres. He was going to take his holidays and he wasn't very sure of wanting to go abroad. It had been long since those summer evenings laying on the beach with his friends till dusk. Days before, he had to throw away a bookcase eaten by the moth and when he took out the box full of pictures, got homesick. He had just talked to Paco and Alberto about coming with him. Here they could have a place to stay, and there were tourists as in the south, thing that convinced them immediately. Andres listened all that homesickness stuff. He, that had not the slightest intention of spending the summer in the city. One has to hear such stupid things, Andres said to himself, while the other was talking about the matchless blue of the Orthan Sea. Look, Andres, your guy's thing is complicated. He's in solitary confinement. He went too far and played a dirty trick on a guard. I don't think they let me talk to him, nor he wants to talk to me, Ramon said without interest. Andres realized quite well Ramon was not willing so he had to tell him the Dutch story. At that point, Ramon saw easier speak to the prisoner. And he went, of course. He couldn't find out much because, in fact, the guy was not very talkative. Let's see. I understand you don't want to tell me the name of one friend of yours, but I'm sure you know, some not friend of yours that does the same as they do. Do you know what I mean? He did know. Of course he did. The cop wanted him to say one of his mates' name and then have them up when they did a job for them, as they had done to him. Of course he knew. He was not an idiot. And of course, he told him Shiana's name, mine, because he hated me, because I was better than him, because I caught better 
and I had more job, because I was smarter and they had never caught me, because he was a motherfucker and a coward that didn't mind throw trash over the rest. And who knows which other dark reasons he had. Ramon hadn't heard my name for years, and he didn't know well if it was the homesick time he was going through or if he really was longing for seeing me. But he liked it. Well, the truth is that I write this down for the sake of the argument. A fantasy that makes me happy. Maybe he didn't remember me at all. But I'm happier thinking he did. And that's it. After leaving the prison, standing in front of a traffic light, he remembered the full temper, I mean, he remembered the full temper I had and the scene I made when I found him with that top model. And he thought that maybe he'd better tell me the whole thing straight and not listen to Andres' warnings because in the end I should be more proactive if he told me the truth than if I found it out halfway. I was capable of... But then he thought it better again and he discussed the topic with Paco and Alberto. They didn't know me at all, but the other had told them our story his way. He was the poor victim, of course. Bitch and a half was I. They got into their head that it was better Andres' way, and keep the secret to them. In front of a bunch of beers, they planned the strategy. They decided to take their holidays earlier and come here to supervise the whole thing. Andres would be in charge of finding me, following me and making a report of my movements. They could meet me by chance and bring the treasure thing up. And as I liked talking a lot, I would press along and then swallow the bite. They wouldn't take me in to right there. They could make me wish for it. Afterwards, knowing me, I could have the hmm in my head and I would be looking forward to taking out whichever I had to take out, but as it was my thing. And once out of the water, they could give me some coins and they would keep the rest because I am stupid. Then, they could keep half or perhaps a bit more, depending on how many there were, and give the rest to the bank's manager. And if he suspected something, they already had me to put the blame on. As a plan, it was not bad. They liked it. Even it's simple, it may work, Ramon thought. And it would work if Paco hadn't given that jump on the chair. Yes. So big the Paco's mistake was. So big that it needed two chapters. Paco had never seen the sea. On television, of course. He didn't miss a chapter of Baywatch. But he had never seen it in person. He admired a lot the Baywatchers from the TV show. He recorded every chapter to admire them many times. Many, really many. The reason wasn't the one you are thinking about. 
it was that he identified very much with them, with the aim to serve and protect, of course. He woke up by the change of pressure as the plane began to go down, and the poor man almost had a fit when he opened his eyes. Ramon should warn him before about the amount of water surrounding the airport, a huge amount. The man thought he was going to meet the sea, like it or not, in one go, without trimming trunks or a pamela. He was trying to fit his head out of his knees and the front seats back after taking the life jacket from the place the stewardess had said it were, and luckily it was. When Ramon realized something weird was happening, instead of unblocking him, gave Alberto a shout to split their sides laughing for a while. And the while lasted until the stewardess pounded the beat, kept a tiny rain on them and disentangled Paco from the front seat. Oh my god, what a stress! And people say they are on the Barbies. But as soon as he saw the beach, with his feet on the sand, started to think that he wasn't wrong, and it was the biggest thing ever seen. He worked out where the middle was and walked determined to that point. He left the shoes with the socks inside on the sand, rolled up his trousers and walked to the water. The first impression was shocking but natural. Bloody hell, how cold it is! It had never crossed his mind the temperature of the water. The bywatchers threw themselves into the water with such lack of concern that he thought it was as warm as a swimming pool. It was three degrees over zero in the moment Paco got his nail into the water. And he didn't know if it was because of that, but he felt a slight dizzy feeling when he looked at his feet and saw the wave going away, as if the ground was moving. Other thing that shocked him was the strength. The waves didn't have that idyllic beaching of the Californian sunset, or maybe his legs from the exposure didn't respond as they should. He went out to the sand and looked around. Everybody was playing and swimming happily, as it was the usual. Then he thought he was the odd one and tried again. If all that people could, he also could. He took a run and jumped into the water like he had seen Pamela do so many times. You can tell he was concentrated on other business because he jumped in just in the moment the wave moved away and he ended diving headlong into the sand. He could hardly get up and when he finally stood up, other wave came from behind and knocked him over again. And the guy had not even a miserable carmen to hold. From this first contact, Paco drew three conclusions. One, the sea is a motherfucker, cold and with very bad temper. Two, Ramon and Alberto are two motherfuckers that are going to laugh at their holy arses as soon as I can stand up 
and go next to where they are falling about with love. 3. The Bay Watchers are not life worths. They are superwomen, but of the good ones, even if it's just for running along that hostile element's edge. Afterwards, he walked to the sand where Ramon and Alberto were crying, but literally crying with love. He dragged them into the water because Paco wasn't handsome at all, but he was big and strong. And that's how they three ended playing the fool in the middle of the beach. The smear with sand soaked up to the ears and making an appalling exhibition of themselves. Although people went home with something to tell. In short, he lost his fear of the sea and at the end of the day it was as he had born in the very salt water. He moved so well from side to side that he looked like the little mermaid. But Paco had that dizzy feeling, that ground moving under his feet feeling again the first time he saw Sandra. The truth is that Ramon hadn't offered to take me to my place's door, just in case there was a spider hanging from the light bulb at the landing or so disappointed me. I wasn't lucky, or maybe I was, because it reinforced my theory that Paco's jump wasn't owed to the excitement of the chat, and they were up with something. I looked several times out of the window and the car wasn't there. Then I found Sandra and Salva. Come here right now, I said. I have to tell you something. They arrived quickly. Sandra was strolling around nearby. We were meeting to see Glamorous Heart, a gossip TV show we liked. Sandra more than me. She was so hooked on, and not only on this, but every gossip show. I mean, every one of them. She really likes becoming fond of things. When we got something, we didn't show it to her, because she was a kind of diogenes and wanted to keep everything. From time to time, we brought her things to care, beautiful things we couldn't use to exchange. Salva arrived quickly, because he is like that, quick. Especially in those days. He was so stressed because the trial's date for the mess Andres had pushed him into had already came out. He was making a list with the last things he wanted to do before going to prison. He wasn't going to prison, almost for sure. That was what his lawyer told him. The conversation with the Gondor trio didn't seem too much to them. To Sandra, less than Salva, because the show had just begun. Salva told me that, although I probably was paranoid, he was going to make some inquiries all around. And while Marquitos de Buenacuna was telling us the so in love he was with his future fiancé with whom he was going to Fiji for their honeymoon and to whom he had given a latest model of Mercedes the first day he met her, I mean, two weeks before, because he realized she was the woman of his life, I imagined 
how wonderful it would be driving a Mercedes latest model while Mozart's music sounded. Salva imagined how wonderful it would be waking up each day in a different country, going through tropical beaches and exciting cities of the world, from luxury hotel to luxury hotel, like George Clooney in Ocean's Eleven. And Sandra imagined how wonderful it would be that someone realized she was the woman of his life in the very first moment he saw her. The last judgment. It wasn't really the last. There was a chance of appealing. Salva was very nervous, walking from one side to another, while his lawyer, Carlos, was chatting with others, not bothered at all. We arrived late. I, more than Sandra. Well, fine. Sandra arrived on time. I was on time because the trial was delayed. Otherwise... You are late. Where were you? Salva said hysterical when I arrived. Well, I didn't know what the hurry was. It was so boring. The first time I went to a trial, I was so excited because I thought it was like in the movies. Sharp attorneys, unexpected witnesses. But the truth is that they are boring. The lawyers don't walk along the court and they had to wear a cloak like Harry Potter. And in short, the lawyer had already told him he had nothing to worry about. And since when do we trust lawyers? I thought. If you ask me, the lawyer hurt me because he turned round immediately. They are going to put me away. They are going to put me away, I'm sure. Salva said, walking from one side to another. Sandra tried to calm him down, hugging him. But it seemed to him more sympathy than comfort, and he got worse. She sat down and started to think in her own business. The first thing she saw of Carlos were his feet, rather his shoes. Castilian, handmade, first-class leather, and she even guessed the brand before seeing that little label on the heel, which I would write down here, but as they don't give me any commission, I won't. The thing is that Sandra thought, without knowing who he was or seeing his face, he should be a very charming man, because with such a good taste, wouldn't be otherwise. When she raised her eyes, so he had such a striking resemblance with Marquitos de Buenacuna, who was her ideal of her throb in that moment. Actually, they didn't look alike. The thing is that these rich people dress all the same, plus she wasn't used to deal with them. Carlos had just got his eyes on her as soon as she went in, and was trying to make himself seem interesting. But Sandra was daydreaming, and he had to do a few walks along the corridor, and even though she didn't realize until he stood in front of her. In fact, he was about to give up, but when he saw that fascinated look, he knew the catwalk was worthy. 
Salva, luckily, didn't notice his lawyer was more interested in Sandra than in his defense. The trial didn't go too well. The judge was a bitter dinosaur that didn't understand Salva's nervous jokes. Furthermore, Andres testified in favor of the plaintiff, saying certain things of Salva's activities that he'd better kept to himself, and overall, he put all the blame on him. Carlos could ask Andres if he required Salva's services very often, but it was like coming to terms with the charges, and however much to his regret, Salva made a very bad impression. I couldn't stand Andres, just since I saw him waiting at the entrance. All the story of the trial stemmed from one of those recovers we did. Salva had many contacts, I was more freelance, he earned more. The thing is that Salva had to recover an item with two owners, and when the second owner realized that the first was about to put his hands over it, reporter the robbery. The first owner said that he didn't know anything, that once he had talked about it with Andres. Andres said that he was a detective and no way he could go into the water, but they should better talk to Salva, that he knew a lot about these things. And they caught him with the loot at home. That's life. That's what we knew then. As soon as the judge took the mullet and said, the case is remitted for decision, we left the room. Salva didn't want to. He was afraid a couple of uniforms were waiting for him. But I pulled him out and there were nobody waiting for him, luckily, because he insisted so much I almost was afraid to go out too. Carlos invited us for a drink to talk about the trial. Actually, he spent the whole time flirting with Sandra, and Salva didn't do more than repeating names of places he wanted to visit, and things he wanted to do. I played along until he said, Then are you coming bungee jumping with me tomorrow at the Maritime Control Tower? Is this guy completely insane? completely and totally insane, going bungee jumping me. Wasn't I incapable of diving backwards with the oxygen cylinder from the boat? Of course, I go down gradually. I'm not an animal. I had to put an end to that ravens. He was well trained, physically I mean. Enough to nothing happens to him, whichever craziness he did. But that was not the problem. The problem was that he happened both going bungee jumping or showing his button to the mayor. And contrary to what one could believe, the last was much more dangerous. And afterwards, I'm going to put a poster seeking underwear models. Salva said, explaining himself. He would dare for sure. To keep him amused, I insisted that he told me once and for all if some of his contacts had told him if someone was searching the famous treasure of the legend. Suddenly, Carlos stopped flirting with Sandra and turned his ear to us. 
Andres, that was at the bar speaking with one of the lawyers of the rich guy that had reported Salva, also turned round to listen. In that moment, I seriously thought about learning to speak lower. It wasn't that important either. That issue always attracted the attention. But Salva had taken a dislike to Andres and noticed that it was more than curiosity about a legend. Carlos, or he was acting dumb, or he really was, because he said he had never heard such a thing. Salva began to tell us what he had found out. I talked to the ox, one we knew, but we are naming him this way for security reasons and by coincidence and told me he didn't know anything, that probably they were some tourists' stupid things. He had a short break and looked Andres up and down from the corner of his eye. But I plenty knew it wasn't going to be enough for you and went next to Little Fresh. Other we know, and that for security reasons and by coincidence, we are going to name her this way. She told me that there was something, and it said they are in a hurry because of something the council is going to do soon. He had a short break and looked Andres up and down from the corner of his eye again. Something about town planning. Andres was the poor devil, so he stretched and twisted over the circle of the seat that fell over, and he could manage to put his foot on the ground just in time not to crash. Salva smiled mischievously. Town planning? Carlos asked excited. My father-in-law is... Sandra looked at him violently. Thanks, they were two eyes of a striking green, because if they were two penknives, he would die instantly. Your father-in-law? Sandra asked with a voice from beyond the grave. Yeah, Carlos said with a good kid's voice and a tone of, I didn't mean to. Sure, she said at the monthly. Your father-in-law what? Salva asked impatiently, unaware of this scene of jealousy and regret. My father-in-law is the counselor of town planning, Carlos answered. We were astonished. It was the first time we met a councillor's son-in-law. Salva asked him if he knew of the existence of some plan for the disaster area. Carlos said he didn't. But his father-in-law didn't talk too much about these things because his ex-wife, here appeared a ray of hope in Sandra's look. He meant his mother-in-law, there the full mood came back to Sandra was the counselor of social services, and if she got to know they were giving money to town planning instead to social services as things stood, she could table a vote of censure. Get your act together and bring it up. We have to confirm Salva's information as soon as possible, Sandra said using a gossip TV show collaborator's vocabulary. Well, I don't know if I will be able, Carlos replied. What do you really want to know? 
Salva still was keeping an eye on Andres, who was almost sitting at our table, and as he saw him interested in the matter, deduced he was on the right track. He told Carlos to guess if there was or wasn't planned any action over the disaster area. Carlos promised he could try his best, and even Sandra didn't trust too much, he convinced Salva. Salva didn't mind at all Carlos' confirmation. He actually knew that little fresh information was first hands, and it didn't need contrast. Anyway, Andres had already confirmed with his reaction, and above all, he got to keep out from his head that obsession with the bungee jumping. Carlos left in his gorgeous car and we went with Sandra to his place because she was very upset. In the same morning, she had met her Prince Charming, the bastard who broke her heart, and the adulterer that tried to seduce her. The poor lady wasn't used to so many emotions altogether. We left her watching TV with the salty biscuits jar and a still light mineral water, covered with a blanket and with the remote in her hand. The program, no glamour, no heart, was about to begin. It was an acid version of glamorous heart. Salva got me to go to spy Andres with him. You tell me where we were to find him. It had been more than two hours since we had left him, grabbing the cafe bar not to fall off the stool from being so stretched over our table. But Salva, that knew him very well, found him immediately in a brothel that had a color fountain in the neon sign. I had seen it many times going along the road, but I had never imagined myself at its car park getting ready for going in. I neither imagined myself wondering if Salva was a regular of that kind of establishments, because I didn't think he was like that. Well, at this point, I preferred not to think, although I kept on thinking about it for a while, and I felt like washing my hands after touching him. All men are pigs, all of them, without exception. As soon as they saw Salva, three girls, in a very warm way, approached him. And the weird thing is that he did pay attention to them. And why did I have on my mind he liked men? Oh yes, because he told me he was gay 15 years ago when we met. They all are pigs. And while I was turned between the Salva's sexual leanings, he was walking to a private room hand in hand with the three top models that I didn't know what were doing in that dive, beautiful as they were. That's life. And I remained there, standing alone in the middle of a road club, a hostess bar, of a den of iniquity, surrounded by affectionate couples and cheap wine. I say cheap to dramatize the situation. Maybe it was expensive. It isn't my intention to debase the brother's wine cellar at all. Lady, I think you came into the wrong club. One man's voice said in my ear. Yes, I think I did too. 
I said without looking at him, trying to move away a bit because they tickle me when they talk to me so close to the ear. And it gives me a mixture of teeth on edge and malicious pleasure I can't describe. And neither it was the time to feel Randy because I didn't get paid until the 10th. I can show you the way out if you want. He said in my ear again. He made my hair stand on end and felt like scrubbing my ear to stop that feeling. You know, the thing is that I came with a friend, I said. He went over there. Well, I don't think he needs your company now, he said. Well, I'm not leaving without him. The rat bastard has the car keys, so get moving. I said annoyed at the same time I turned round to see at last the face of that impertinent. I shouldn't. If I got a bit horny with him talking in my ear, seeing him was worse. He looked like a pseudo-actress with a degree in science Polish ex-lover. I'm quite sure I didn't dribble, at least not consciously, but my pupils probably dilated all they could. Then you should have something while you wait, he said. Oh well, that's going to be kind of impossible and broke. You could invite me, couldn't you? I asked while I was thinking it was natural they charged for that. He was too much to be for free. No, madam, I couldn't. Don't worry, she's with me, Salva said at last. Let's go, Siana. I had a party ready for you there, in the private room. He had a lucky escape. Thanks to I still was amazed with the Adonis, because otherwise I would kill him. I really would. How could he leave me standing there alone? He took me behind a maroon velvet curtain that I tried not to touch because only God knew who had touched it before and how long it had been since the last time they got it clean. At the private room there were the three cheerful girls with champagne flute each. I looked at Salva, telling him clearly that he was the gay, not me. And what the hell he was expecting me to do because he just knew that I knew things, just the needed. While the girls were parting among them, Salva told me with a gesture to sit down, to listen carefully and, above all, to keep silence. I mean, he pushed me up to make me trip and fall on the couch, he knocked his ear twice with the index finger and afterwards put that same finger in front of his mouth. I did my utmost and I shrugged my shoulders to tell him I didn't hear a thing, seeing we couldn't speak. He killed me with the look and knocked again his ear with the index finger and then the couch back. So I did the same he did, in the ear on the couch back thing, as much disgusting as it was. Not in the knocking thing, I could notice that side of his face was a bit red. A 
last I could hear some voice out of our private roommate's funny bustle. There were two nervous men. Nervous because of the anger, not because of the other. Given the circumstances, this point should be clarified. Actually, they were the counselor of town planning and Andres. You should know to whom you told what you didn't have to tell, the counselor said. I told what I needed to get what we two wanted, or better, what we three want. But I spoke about what I knew, and I didn't know anything about an action over... And he did, Andres said, going on the defensive. There is not such plan, man. How I have to say it? There isn't. The so-called Salva pulled your leg. You fucked him at the court and he took revenge on you, the counselor pretended. You say? Andres said without conviction. They were arguing for a while about... What you don't tell me and you know, and what you know and you don't tell me. Afterwards, to my surprise, it came out Ramon's name. I looked at Salva to clear him up. I had realized that the Paco's jump on the chair really had a meaning. Several bottles of wine later, which I made it clear to Salva he was going to pay because I wasn't going to get into debt. You don't have to worry about my son-in-law. He's more focused on me not taking him out of the will than on knowing what I'm involved in. I'll tell him some silly excuse and if he knows what is good for him, he's going to believe it. And you'll see what to do with the others. Weren't they the people you wanted for the job? The counselor said. Yeah, sure. Andres said pretending to agree. In that moment, the counselor got up and left with a See you. Andres didn't move at all, or if he had, he had done it silently, and we couldn't hear him. Suddenly, what's up? Andres said, speaking with somebody. We have to talk about that issue I told you. Something doesn't tally. No, no, I had just told you it was weird. They wanted it right now. Why now or not before? Excuse me? Well, if I hadn't, I'm telling you now, we're still in plenty of time. Andres shouted. He seemed angry. I'm here at the Venus. Come, Andres said. What do you mean with where is it? It consoled me. Ramon didn't know about that dive because I deeply believed he was talking to Ramon. What the hell? It is the one with the fountain! Andres explained. <laughs> Andres laughed. That's it! That's it! I just knew you could remember! There is no exception. Pigs. All of them. All. All! Salva looked at the empty bottles over the table and told me to go. I replied that no way, that he should pay or Vera shouldn't come in, that he was a typhistid. He gave me a dirty look, but he neither insisted too much. The triplets kept on parting, and while we were waiting, Salva moved close to them. 
I didn't want to look, just in case I liked it, and lost my street, solid, undefined sexual schemes. They didn't take long, maybe 15 minutes. They sat down among laughs and silly remarks as I really could do the one in red and some other refined things like that. When they calmed down, they went to the point, the treasure point, not the club point proper. Ramon told Andres it was natural the councillor hided the real reasons. They all did, but anyway, it didn't make a difference. Whatever reason was, we were going to do the job and they were going to do well out of it. He also said that it didn't matter, Salva and I knew more or less that we were going to do the job and they were going to do well out of it. And also, yes, also, he told him it didn't matter, the son-in-law lawyer rich kid investigated whatever he wanted to because we were going to do the job and they were going to do well out of it. May I ask, how are you so sure Siana is going to do it? Andres asked nervously. Because I know her. She can fight against her instincts. And if she knows that, as well as getting money, she's going to fuck the council, she's going to do it more than pleased. But she's not going to fuck them. She's going to help them, Paco said. Help them? How? Ramon asked. Pac explained them that if the councillor wanted to recover the treasure, and I did it, I was helping, not getting in the way. A silence fell. Paco, look, why don't you go out and bring some girls? Ramon said. Pig, pig, pig. Paco got up and left. Ramon told Andres not to worry. He could convince me in case I backed out, which he doubted. But he didn't say it like I'm telling you. He said it with that voice men had when they think they had everything under control. You know, when a woman is overjoyed with one word of them and she doesn't see more than through their eyes. Salva looked at the floor. The skull treason welcomed the hostess with laughs and toasts. And as the treasure thing seemed to reach an end, I told Salva to say goodbye to our company and pay. I was waiting for him standing at the hall where the super macho man had came to tickle my ear, expecting to be lucky again because in that moment I needed it so much. But I wasn't. I just was down thinking about what I had done badly to make that love from the past not only wanted to use me to do a dubious legality job, but wanted to steal from me and, above all, he was a disgusting with absolutely no feelings. I, that dreamt about a prince charming, one of those with a beautiful name, such as Caspian. Along the few meters that separated the Venus door from the Salva's car, I swore 100 times. Salva didn't say a word, even I'm quite sure he preferred me to load the volume because he was waving down. 
Fuck him off! I said, putting an end. Do they want me to take out the treasure? Do they want? Do they? Well then, I'm going to do it. Not half, I'm doing it. And you are going to help me. But we'll let these vipers down. If they think I'm going to give them all I find from the quarter, not the half, they don't know who I am. And as I was imagining my revenge, I shouted louder. And when we got into the car, I happened to look at the car besides ours, and I saw Paco looking at me. I went as white as a white sheet, and Salva said, I told you, but you didn't care, with a new old voice. At this point, I had no choice. He pretended being asleep, and about time, it didn't work. I knocked twice on the window, and although at first he refused to open it, he did at last. Hi, Shiana, how are you doing? He said, pretending he was waking up. I told him to get out to talk, and he did, with reservations, but he did. He told us he didn't know more than what I had told them and than what he supposed we had heard at the Venus. We didn't believe him completely, at least I. Salva remained convinced as soon as he said that was what Andres had told them. Because Salva plenty knew, Andres only said the strictly needed and if it was possible, only what was convenient for him. And what is more, he omitted all that could prejudice the rest. I didn't know if Paco was as naive as he seemed, but he deserved some trust of me. After all, he was the only one who I could officially exclude from the peak category. In front of Sandra's building, Paco hesitated to go in. He knew it wasn't my house, and the door looked pretty bad. But we didn't give him time to run away. We went in with our key because Sandra probably still was on the sofa. The program, not glamour, nor heart, lasted five or six hours. Salva went to the kitchen and Paco and I went to the sitting room. In fact, Sandra was watching the screen. She only averted her eyes a moment while they were advertising the ringtones. But the voiceover releasing the following contents captivated her again. Paco stood up for a few seconds, and then he suddenly sat down. Yes, it was in that precise moment when he felt that dizzy feeling of the first time he had the sea under his feet. Salva came in with chips and biscuits and mesmerized, watched the telly, without talking. Well, Paco was watching Sandra. All the collaborators were at the set. Aria Cancino, our favorite, got an exclusive interview with the Marchioness of Marie The Marchioness wasn't keen on sets and the interview was on Michelle. The sudden cancellation of the wedding of the Marchioness song had unleashed 
the rumors that his fiancée had been unfaithful to him, and the former's subsequent marchioness annoyance. That night, they were going to clarify all our doubts. They were going to dispel all the rumors. They were going to lay the cards on the table. The Marchioness of Ripipi could tell it all, all of it. Before proceeding to the interview, they used to have a debate where Aria Cancino dropped little phrases of the coming, and the rest tried to give their pros and cons. Sandra and I were in favor of the fiancé. The cheating on thing was a Marchioness trap for sure. Salva said that the Marchioness smelled a rat and decided to intervene before the fiancé took half of her fortune, which was the only thing that bitch was interested in. Paco didn't take sides because he thought like Salva, but he didn't want to go against Sandra. The press photographer Arthur Salmos maintained that there were some photos of the unfaithful going around the editorial offices of the most important magazines of the country. Aria Cancino said the Marchioness had talked openly over the photo thing and she didn't know they really existed. Arthur said that it was what suited her because she didn't want his song looked like a cock cold. Charo Fermin said she was a Rosalia's personal friend, who was the fiancé's name, and she was a very reliable girl, with her MBA, a job in a board of directors, and she was so much in love with the Marchioness song. Pismi González suggested that maybe the cheeky one was the hair, and also maintained that there were photos going around the editorial offices of the main tabloids of the country, and even abroad. There, the conductor stopped the debate and introduced the interview. The truth is that it was a big disappointment. Of course, she talked about the cancellation of the wedding. She said it was a bride's and groom's issue and she wasn't the one to talk about it. Although Aria made the question in thousands of ways, even Paco said if they had people like her making interrogations, nobody was going to slip away. What she did talk about was the supposed trap to her future daughter-in-law. She said that never ever would do something like that to anybody. That she loved her as a daughter. That she was a very good girl, very hardworking, and that came from a very good family. Sandra and I looked at each other, reading our minds. The Marchioness was such a false. When Ari asked about his son's scurrilous behavior, she tried to justify it, saying he did what all twenty-something did. That he was young, he wanted to live life. She informed on herself. She didn't want his son to get married. Of course she didn't. You could easily notice it. Aria insisted on the photos matter, and she assured there weren't photos at all. She was absolutely sure. After the interview, the debate was really fervent, at the set and at home. I noticed the Martians had paid to withdraw her son's pictures, 
and had paid also to circulate the Rosalias. Sandra was certain about this last thing, but she thought that if there were some photos of her song, she wouldn't mind they published them because she was kind of open-minded. Plus, it helped the no marriage cause. Paco said the daughter-in-law had planned the whole story to get rid of the little Marquis after the wedding, but for some reason, things anticipated. Salva said the so-called Rosalia was a nasty bitch dying to be famous and she didn't mind getting married or not as long as she appeared on TV, because he had just heard they had offered her a show in that channel which pays the beautiful girls for appearing.